Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Maria Nambu. She is the creator of the popular workout based on African dance, Aerobics with Soul, and is also an award-winning author of the Dancing Soul Trilogy book series, Africa's Child, America's Daughter, and Drumbeats, Heartbeats. Maria and I will be having a conversation about her inspiring and heartwarming memoir series that chronicle her triumph over adversity as a mixed-race orphan child raised by German missionary nuns in a boarding school in Tanzania, challenges as an immigrant in the United States, her path to success, and timeless life lessons she has learned along the way. Good morning, Maria. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you. Wonderful. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me. Dancing Soul Trilogy books are wonderful reads. They are beautifully written with tons of heart and soul, and I truly love the various pictures included in the books as they bring life to the words. Yes, they bring life to the words, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. All right. Um, actually, the reason I wrote my book is that I, I, I wanted to tell the story of you know, my story and of many other people. Uh, in Tanzania, a long time ago when I was born, 76 years ago, uh, mixed-race children were not very well accepted in the society. The Africans, you know, usually did not want us, and the white people who were, could be missionaries or, or, or colonial, uh, British colonizers or tourists, whatever, they didn't even acknowledge us. So very often we were, we were hidden in the villages, and some of us, I always say, could live and die and never even see the sun. So uh, I was lucky I wasn't one of them because uh, an order of German nuns, Catholic German nuns from Germany, came to this Tanzania, this remote place, and opened an orphanage for us mixed-race children. So word got around the country, and people came from in every shape and size to the orphanage, where some were older, some were little, some were 10, 15, 20. But I was brought there when I was only three days old. So uh, this was the life in the orphanage, and the bigger girls, bigger orphans who came, they were not all necessarily, orph- necessarily orphans, mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. finally there was a place that we were wanted. So couples that were legally married, you know, interracial couples, and they loved their children, they brought them there right. because they know they would be treated better than in the general society. So the bigger mm-hmm. girls took care of the little girls, and then, of course, the nuns were there to run the schools and to, to convert us and teach us about Catholicism and, and take care of us. So mm-hmm. uh, that was kind of life in the, in the orphanage. That's how it started. And uh, from then, uh, not, not all of us went to school. You, we School there was only up to the fourth grade. So, but every so often some of us would be sent away to an African school, you know, for boarding school, that we would be gone for like 
about you know 10 months and then come back to the orphanage because that was our home. And as miserable as the orphanage was, uh, the African school experiences where we were were so much worse that we couldn't wait to get back to the <laughs> orphanage. Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that in Africa, that was kind of uh, how it was. But then I ended up um, going to school and I uh, talk about my experiences in the African school. And then in the 12th grade, I, I was lucky to go to a school that was run by American Marinol sisters. They were also Catholic, but it was the first secondary school for girls in the country. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the luckiest one people to go. And there I met a woman who brought, who uh, adopted me and brought me to America. And I came to America, went to school here. I went to St. Paul, Minnesota. I got married, have uh, two children. Um, I taught, I majored in French and taught French and Swahili. I created my aerobics with soul program, which is a dance fitness program based on African tribal dancing. And, uh, and kind of this is where I am now. I'm content. Then I decided that I had to write my books because it was the one thing that was haunting me. I I felt I was chosen to tell the story, and mm-hmm. I, I I just did it, and I'm so glad I, I did it. Very very interesting. Well, in reading your book, one of the things that I got out of it, it's in the end after reading the three books. Obviously, life is an adventure. Mm-hmm. Felt there's a tremendous amount of resiliency. Yeah. When there's hope and resiliency, you may relate to this. This is very, very interesting. Years ago, nowadays people can't comprehend what I'm about to say, but perhaps you may be able to understand this. My mom used to tell me that no matter what happened, it is an analogy of the milk. No matter how you stir it any way you want, the cream always rises to the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yes, <laughs> but absolutely nowadays, it's right. But nowadays, milk. <laughs> they don't, <laughs> they don't understand what we're talking yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. When you get the natural, real milk, that's the a wonderful analogy about things, nature, and so forth, that comes from elderly people that live life and uh, mm-hmm. pay attention to nature. And so in reading your book, that came to mind in terms of your ability to just naturally go with the flow. Yeah, you know, I absolutely get that analogy. Um, I think for me, I I I had no choice. Just like the milk has no mm-hmm. choice. If you stir it in this cream, it will come to the top. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> I had no choice. You know, I really realized right. very early on that I was alone. That I didn't have parents. I didn't have anyone. I was considered one of the true orphans. Like we've said, not everybody was mm-hmm. an orphan there, and people who were right. not orphans home for holidays and all. But I realized that I was really, really alone. And so I looked at my situation, and I evidently stirred it this way and that way, and came to the conclusion <laughs> that if I really did not did not love myself, I would die. And I remember as a child, I was really little. I, in the book, I say five, but I think I was three. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I remembered saying, you know, I want to live. I want to live. I didn't even know mm-hmm. what I was living for because there was always nothing, obviously right. nothing for me. But there was this mm-hmm. survival instinct that I think I was yeah. born with. And I think most, most of correct. us are born with if we listen yeah. to it, you know. 
So mm-hmm. I decided mm-hmm. to, to, to love myself and to take care of myself so that no matter what, if, any, if the world didn't know me, the world didn't love me, and we were really abused and beaten all the time, I always went back to me and my, the person I created within me, who was called Fat mm-hmm. Mary, who was my twin, and talked to her. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one of my real survival instincts that, that helped me. And I always looked at the situation, and I always, even as a child, knew that no one was indispensable in my life except mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. nothing lasts forever. Right, right, right. That's true. Very true. Coming yeah. back to your life at the orphanage, Tell us a little bit about the village mothers. Yeah, that was really something, you know. Uh, again, as I said, I realized that many of the other orphans had mothers who came to visit them and all, and and mm-hmm. I realized that I also had a mother. And if I remember, my, I think the book begins with saying my entire life I've been searching for my mother, wondering why, where she was and why she didn't like me or anything. And I just was deep down, I was determined to some way find her. So when I was uh, four or five or six, uh, I decided to go and find my mother here. I mean, (laughs) find an orphanage, you know. But it is that survival instinct that, you know, you're going to do whatever you need to do. And uh, the orphanage was surrounded by African villages. And I would hear Mm -hmm. the music, and that's actually where my love of music began. I would hear the music and uh, I would just want to dance. And so I, and I decided, you know, maybe my mother's living in the village. So I, mm-hmm. I, I would sneak into the village and when I heard the drums, we were forbidden to dance the pagan way or supposedly the mm-hmm. African way, but mm-hmm. I love to dance that way. So I would sneak down mm-hmm. there and one day I was there and there were three very old women, but I didn't know the difference. They had white hair, but I mm-hmm. was sure one of them was going to be my mother. So I asked each one of them individually, are you my mother, are you my mother, are you my mother? And there was silence between all of them. No one said anything. When I asked the last woman, are are you my mother, there was again silence. But then all three Mm -hmm. of them in unison said, we are all your mother. Mm -hmm. That was Mm -hmm. a turning point for me because there was something Mm -hmm. about that statement that made me feel that I was connected to these women. Maybe it was our our womanhood. Maybe it was our mm-hmm. culture. Maybe it was the land. Maybe it was the universe. There was something that made me feel I belonged. So those village mother mothers have always been with me, and I I can feel them wherever I am. Where I see a group mm-hmm. of people get together, I feel that human connectedness and belonging. Right. That's a beautiful story. And the reason why I ask that is because in the sense that, respectfully, the ladies, they have these natural motherly instincts. And yes. in the end, as you have traveled and you've lived life and you're a mother and a grandmother, you realize that in the end, regardless of whoever's child that is, it's a child that needs Absolutely. the motherly love, the unconditional mm-hmm. love, the nurturing and the nourishments of love. And so... That's the fascinating because that unconditional love, whether it's God's love or whatever way you want to categorize it, is universal. You can go to anywhere in the world and you run into a mother. They will take care of that baby regardless. Yes, yes. That is very true. So you talk a little bit about school and so forth. Now, what happens to all the girls and boys who have reached adulthood and in some ways they are truly often? 
What happened to them? Well, the uh, most of them, like the, the boys, you know, were there. But the mm-hmm. boys, of course, <laughs> the nuns sent them away to another boys' school after they became mm-hmm. 13 or so. They didn't want to mix us up with girls because they all sure, told us sure. all we're all, all, you know, we were constantly being warned about the big right. thing, you know. And right, uh, so right. their boys were taken away before they were adults or before, so, or before even in the adolescence, they were taken to another boys' boarding school in the south of the country. But the girls who, who stayed there, you know, sometimes, you know, they, mm-hmm. were, they were married off, you know, the mm-hmm. nuns would one for them, or so there would be suitors who would come to the orphanage, and they would pick a girl, mm-hmm. and she would go. But uh, those who didn't get that chance, you know, might, might have a mm-hmm. job to go and work for a white family as a nurse, as a caregiver. Mm-hmm. You know, there were many right. older white colonialists who, who lived there and right. wanted to die so they needed help, and we, the, uh, there was a reputation that the Kifungilo girls, Kifungilo was the name of the orphanage, <laughs> the Kifungilo yes. girls were very well trained, and we were. We were trained by Germans, mm-hmm. after all. Right, so, right. Uh, so we were hardworking, we were disciplined, and but then there were some who, you know, had to remain there because they didn't have any other outlet, any other place to go, and they remained there and became what we called the big girls. So the big girls mm-hmm. took care of all the little orphanages who were coming in, you know, grooming them, taking care right. of their needs. Yes, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, the the big girls were the ones who who really, really abused us. I imagine there will be a certain amount of resentment because as they see children or their so-called sisters and brothers come and go and were selected by families and opportunities that arise, and certainly they felt behind. There's no good or bad, but situationally it is, and one could relate to their frustration, for lack of a better term. I think I write about that too. You know, I kind of put myself in the situation, and they have no right. way out, and and that, so they took their frustration out on the on the little girls because they Precisely. had nothing, you know, and at least for us. Right. I felt as a little girl, what I had more than anything was my love for myself and hope. Mm-hmm. I always knew mm-hmm. I was going to get out of there. I didn't know how, but there was always, mm-hmm. and I didn't even know where I was going, but I was always, mm-hmm. again, that survival instinct, that milk that you're stirring. Right. You know you're destined right. to go somewhere, and even though you don't know where, you know, it, I, I just knew I was going to survive, <laughs> and but I really understand the frustration of the big girls, and uh, it, 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 was, it was really tough. Not all the time, not all the big girls were cruel, but I just oh, happened sure, to have sure. one of the most cruel ones. Maybe you are the mischievous one as well. <laughs> I was quite mischievous, but, but I was also scared of everybody, you know, because sure, I cried sure. a lot as a child because I, mm-hmm. I, I was fat, and they called mm-hmm. me Fat Mary, and I just hated mm-hmm. that name, Fat Mary. But as you can, you remember in the book, I took that mm-hmm. test name and turned it around, and I made Fat Mary my friend. She became mm-hmm. my, my twin sister. She's the one I spoke with. She was my counselor, my consoler. And she was, she mm-hmm. was the main tool that really helped me survive mm-hmm. because I had no one to talk to. As you remember in the mm-hmm. book, I asked all, so many mm-hmm. questions. I was told I was so stupid because nobody who mm-hmm. knows anything about life would have so many questions, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so I, I, I internalized, and I went to talk with my fat Mary, and she loved me unconditionally, and she gave me so many mm-hmm. solutions. 
and together we, mm-hmm. we just lived life, and she's still with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, my entire mm-hmm. life, you know, because she is me. She is the part mm-hmm. of me that people cannot see, but it, it's right. my authentic self that uh, really, really knows me like nobody else. Pat Mary to me is your guardian angel. As a child, we are able to create those characters in a way, yeah. in a good way. And I completely understand that. And it went with you. To me, in reading your book and your story, that's wonderful because you have this wonderful conversation. In all actuality, whether it's a, your guardian angel or your divine higher self, that kind of walk you through and give you that quiet confidence in knowing yes. that everything will be okay. Absolutely. And I always, I, I remember even when I was leaving Africa, you know, at age 19, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. Uh, this, I, I, I was a little bit, you know, worried, and I didn't, I was anxious. I was going to this mm-hmm. land, you know, America, the, the promised land, and I was really worried if if the promises of America would also be for me. And I was, I was very anxious, but I always wanted to go to America, you know. But I remember talking to Fat Mary, and I realized when I was talking to her that as long as I had Fat Mary, it didn't care, it didn't matter where I went, I would be okay. That's beautiful. Coming back to your early childhood life, I don't know whether you remember it, but in the sense that there got to be at a moment in time when you ask yourself, what just happened to me? Nobody wanted me. I'm here. I'm an orphan. Not only that, as a special mixed race child, when did that come about in terms of you sort of finding out that that's who you are? Well, uh, it's... <laughs> It, it was not a, like a discovery thing. It was bombarded mm-hmm. into me by the nuns, mm-hmm. by everybody. They called us unwanted children. And in, mm-hmm. the, in the language and the other the people around us, you know, the, the Africans and the whites, they called us every name in the book. We were called half-cuts. Mm-hmm. So first learned, mm-hmm. the first word you learned about yourself is that you were half. You and we were right. told we would never be whole because we were always half and half. So I remember that used to bother me very, very much. Mm-hmm. And I realized, well, so I, I knew right away that I was not like the others, that we were half white and we were half black. So in that particular society, in that particular time, and we were not very wanted. So I had to find my, a way of, of just wanting me and forgetting all these half cuts thing and just realizing like those women in the village told me we were connected and they were and I was whole and there was something about me that was beautiful and, and, and divine and uh, it, the half cast was only on the exterior but never my soul. That's beautiful. The reason why I asked that question is because it's interesting where we don't realize it on the inside that's a special person and the outside is the shell. And yes. when you extend it out, in all actuality, you got the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And when I'm trying to explain to people about Fat Mary, I always say that, you know, everybody mm-hmm. has their own Fat Mary. We all have this in a life that we are because when you see a person, you see what they're wearing, you see their blue eyes or black eyes, you see their skirts, <laughs> their shoes. And, but you, <laughs> that right. doesn't tell you one thing about them, not one. Right. But the person themselves, they know they're not their exterior. They know their feelings, and that is their true self. 
that is, I sometimes feel it, it's the divine in, in us, it's the universe, it's, it's our connectedness, it's something that really makes us so different, you know, let's say from from trees and all, they also have their souls and their spirits and all, but ours right. are a little bit different. And I just really believe that people should, that's where we should start, you know, when we we mm-hmm. deal with our lives. We we always have to to go there to visit our true inner selves and to be familiar with it, to know who we really are, because that's what will will guide us and how to live in the exterior world with all its shortcomings and all the difficulties that we are having. If you love yourself and you see yourself as unique as you are, a beautiful, unique human being that only you know. You know, mm-hmm. and nobody will know unless you tell them. And when you try to tell them, sometimes they think you're a little bit nuts, you know, but um, <laughs> <laughs> or crazy. But it it is there, and I, I encourage right. people when things happen to the first place to go is to within, to go within and to know themselves and love themselves and respect themselves. And many answers come from right within you. Many answers right. to the problems of life you can solve by yourself. So true. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio, Mixcloud, and Google Play. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest for this morning is Maria Nambu. She is the creator of the popular workout based on African dance, aerobics with soul, and also an award-winning author of the Dancing Soul Trilogy Books series. Africa's Child, America's Daughter, and Drumbeats, Heartbeats. Maria and I are having a conversation about her inspiring and heartwarming memoir series that chronicle her triumphed over adversity as a mixed-race, often child, raised by German missionary nuns in a boarding school in Tanzania, challenges as an immigrant in the United States, her path to success, and timeless life lessons she learned along the way. Maria, how did your childhood experiences contribute to your life as an adult? I think I learned, you know, one of the things that has really helped me is what we were almost talking about a little while ago. Uh, I I really learned to to depend on myself. I really learned mm-hmm. as a child that I was in charge for my own happiness because I did not have mm-hmm. parents, I did not have anyone. And I, I really learned to take to 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 listen to myself. I learned to really, really love myself. And when issues were in the world were going wrong all around me, I always started, you know, looking within myself. And I find as I go as as I've grown up and as I've come to America, I'm still going right in there. And they really have influenced how I look. At life, I always feel I have to be comfortable with myself, and then from that that place, I can give, I can appreciate, I can take, I can do all of those things. So I find I'm I'm living my life like that, and I I also know that how what I learned as a child, what I was saying to love and respect myself and start from there. You know, I've also learned that I. I have a lot of hope in everything that's happening in life, even with all that's happening in America right now, you know, all, all, all the situation, the political situation, there's just, just so much uncertainty and fear and all of that. 
I, my childhood taught me that nothing lasts forever, and that hope, hope is really what brought me here. So, so I find I live my life like that. When a situation comes up, I try to deal with it the best I can, but deep down I have this hope that this will change, and if it's going to change, I have to get involved with whatever I have to do to make it change. And it is, I've learned that I have to really participate in my life and be present and, and make the changes that I feel necessary to the best of my ability. And what I cannot do, I just have to accept and move on. Very true. What was the hardest adjustments you had to make when you first came to America? The hardest adjustment, which surprises many people, is that I had to learn to become black, you know, because <laughs> I realized in America everybody looked at me as a black person, even though I could hardly speak English. Uh, right. You know, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. passed, you know, of course I came here in 63, so towards mm-hmm. the end, you know, in 67 or so when he was assassinated, you know, in class, we would discuss, you know, the issue with, with, the, with the racism and with the riots and mm-hmm. everything happening at that time. Uh, and they would, my classmates would always look at me and, and just say, well, what do you people want anyway? I would look around mm-hmm. for you people. I didn't know who you people were. <laughs> but I found out I was you people. And, right, and the only right. thing that made me you people was the color of my skin. I had no cultural mm-hmm. experience as an African-American, and uh, right. yet I was able to represent that race. And I'm like night and day as far as my thoughts, my culture, my way of being. I knew very little. So I just decided I had to learn because I had, I had to accept the fact that, that in general in America when people see me, they don't see a human being first. They see a black person. And so, right. and everything that goes with the description of being black, the good, the bad, and the ugly, mostly the ugly at that time. And I was very unfamiliar with that history. It took me a while to adjust because, you know, when in Rome you do as the Romans do, I could say, no, I'm not African-American, mm-hmm. I'm African. But even in Africa, I was insecure because there, too, I was not wanted. So at least in America, there was a little bit of comfort for me to know mm-hmm. that at least I belong. I was categorized. Right. You know, I didn't fit, but I learned. Right. And, uh, it, but it was quite a, difficult, a, a very difficult adjustment. When people called me black, I didn't know what to do. So sometimes said, someone will say to me, well, you know, have you looked in the mirror recently? You know, you are kind of black. <laughs> so I would actually, I actually go to the mirror and I would look. And, and guess mm-hmm. what? I didn't see a black person. I just saw me. Right, and it was right. very difficult to get that concept in my head that I'm a black person walking down the street because that never entered my mind. Right, right. So true. I agree. I would think the cultural shock would be in pretty much the rest of the world, and especially in Asia and in Africa and in the European countries. The yes. discrimination comes from the economic groups rather than not necessarily in the color of your skin. I'm not saying that it's not there, but the predominant sort of discrimination or classification one would have would be more from economic basis versus here in the United States. On the other hand, at that time, and in many ways, it's still now in some ways, it's not the economic discrimination, the level where you're at, but rather the color of your skin. 
Yes, and I, that is really one of the main distinctions I found about discrimination, you know, in Africa, where, in, in Tanzania, where I was, and here, mm-hmm. I found, like you say, in, in, in Tanzania, it was socioeconomic. It was mostly a class thing, you know? Mm-hmm. It, right. Right. Ah, okay, so you are educated and you're wealthy and you belong to this family, to this chief family mm-hmm. or to this government. So it was that mm-hmm. kind of discrimination they looked down. But in America, that, isn't, that doesn't exist, you know. Even Oprah Winfrey right. going to Paris to buy a purse, they give her a cheaper mm-hmm. one because they said, you know, I don't think you want to look at that one. You know, that's not for you. You look at this. <laughs> that's what she has achieved. So it is obvious right. and it is proof that it is the color that you know, mm-hmm. and when you really think about it, it's about the most stupid way to distinguish people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not. I mean, I just call it stupid because common sense doesn't. It doesn't. You, you can't. You can't justify it no matter how you look at it, because when right. you, when the thing comes off, we're all absolutely the same, and right. I can't understand how intelligent people cannot see that. I completely understand because we are conditioned. Unfortunately, yes. I'm sure you would agree with this concept that actually, in reality, when we look deep enough, all our decisions, whether it's personal or professional, are governed by two separate but equal forces fear or love. And so, many a times, when we look at things that we are fearful of, in those situations, our natural human instinct of survival kicks in. So, we mm-hmm. protect ourselves. We have to look down in a way because out of protecting ourselves as being the superior one. That's yeah. reality, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree that uh, because uh, we fear that which we do not know. And again, it's mm-hmm. that human instinct to, pro- to protect ourselves. And we, we're mm-hmm. afraid of, of people who look different from us, people who, who talk different. We, for some reason, and, but like you say, a lot of it has been passed down. You know, from generation, mm-hmm. when you are born into a black family in America, there are certain mm-hmm. things you learn, how, you know, what to do and what not to do to protect yourself mm-hmm. because the fear that your, your past generations or your parents have had to go through simply by the fact that they are black. So that is kind mm-hmm. of passed on because everybody wants to survive. Everybody wants to protect themselves. So yeah. that is, again, it is, it's, that's what they call, cult, you know, um, institutionalized it comes to the level of institutionalized right. you know racism that people generally right. even know that what they're saying or what they're doing could be considered racist or what but they have right. they just do it because this is how it was done and this is how they know they're going to survive mm-hmm. because otherwise they, they will be in trouble that's right you have a very interesting relationship with your adoptive mom so can you please share that relationship with us Yes, you know, she adopted me, you know, when she was, she was 23, and I was 19, you know, and <laughs> the 19 fully grown basket case African woman, and, uh, you know, I just don't know how, she, she was my English teacher in, in mm-hmm. Africa, oral English, and uh, she realized that I really had no place to go when I was finished in the 12th grade, in secondary school. I had to go back to the orphanage and become a big girl. My job description would, description would be probably to beat little girls because I know mm-hmm. other out. And uh, so she brought me here, you know, to America, and I got a scholarship uh, to the, college, the University of St. Catherine's now in St. Paul. Mm-hmm. But it, mm-hmm. it's amazing. People say, you know, she's only four years older than you. She's, she's probably like your sister. 
you know. Mm-hmm. But I have mm-hmm. never, I don't know how to explain it. I have never had a problem regarding her as my mother because she played the mother role to me. She gave me what right. I, a mother gives. So I have never mm-hmm. referred to her as my sister. I never called her mom. I called her Kathy, yeah. but in my heart... I gave her the respect and the love and everything because she was the mother. She was the woman. She was the mother who wanted me, who loved mm-hmm. me, the mother. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, we have a beautiful relationship. I always consider her my, my, my mother. And mm-hmm. uh, she is always also, she has had to make lots of adjustments in bringing a, a, a black child from Africa here and becoming the mother. There were so many issues that happened mm-hmm. that she had no clue. And um, But we have a beautiful relationship, uh, and uh, I completely consider her my mother because, like I said, she was the mother I wanted. She embodied every single thing that I wanted in a mother, and I've always been very grateful that when, when, she, de- when she decided I needed a mother and, and she could maybe mother, she didn't, mm-hmm. she didn't think it through, I'm always saying. Thank God she didn't think it through too much because everything would have been against her. But I always say she, she saw me with her heart. She didn't right. see me with her mind. She saw me with her heart. And, you know, your heart and your emotions, they have no filters. They just, they just right. kind of overflow. They just kind of take over. And she remained there, and she's still there. So I feel that that was the real blessing. And sometimes we really need to look at things from, from our commonality, from our emotions, because we all feel the same way. We feel sadness. We feel anger. We feel right. love. If we approach things from that point, we will see how similar we are, and, and we can move mm-hmm. mountains, which she did. In your 20s and 30s, who were the people that influenced you most, and how did they impact your life? You know, in my 20s and 30s, okay, I got married like when I was 25. So, of mm-hmm. course, my, the family that was created, the fact that I was going to have a family and all, that, that played a big part in the members and the people who were in my family, my in-laws, my husband, and uh and but also the friends the very few friends i actually made in college mm-hmm. they you know they influenced me i had a wonderful teacher a french teacher in college and she's still my friend today she's moved back to france she influenced me a lot because she always talked to me she always listened to me so i found I, my teachers really influenced me and 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 the fact that i I was now creating a family. I looked at families differently. The, my immediate mm-hmm. family, uh, that's what influenced me. But, but overall, I think even in that part, it was just people who came and, and, and reached me uh, mm-hmm. by, by lifting me up and helping me achieve what I am. And there were many here and there and everywhere. And like my few friends stand out, my few teachers stand out, and then of course the role of family in my life really, really influenced me. When did you meet your birth mother? I met my birth mother when I was 36 in 1976. She came mm-hmm. looking for me, and you know, guess what? The surprise of all surprises, she was white, 
and she was an American. Mm-hmm. And my entire life, if, if you remember, book one begins with me praying in front mm-hmm. of the Christmas time, asking baby Jesus to find my mother. And I prayed for that my entire life. Uh, to, I was always looking for my mother, but I did. She was not the mother in my mind at all. I was looking for an <laughs> African mother because all the, the mothers mm-hmm. who came to the orphanage were African. So I always right. joke, I wonder Jesus couldn't find her. But um, so, and she was, uh, yeah, she was an American, and she had just gone there. She and her husband, uh, I think her husband started out as a missionary, and uh, they lived there for about 20 years and then came mm-hmm. back over here. So um, she, was, she, she was not the mother I was looking for in every way. It was good to have that closure to know who she was, at least for my grandkids. I wanted my, right. my children and my grandchildren because they knew nothing. My my, my daughter was six, and she meets, her, you know, her grandmother for the first time, and she's already in her 70s, you know. So it was, a, it right. was quite a concept to explain to them. Right. What's interesting, though, when you look back, Maria, is that full circle, that yearning you have as a child that somehow – you're destined to be in America. Yeah. Then the second layer that comes in is that the validation in the end, when you look at a child, the bond, even though, yes, the father obviously is involved in making a child. <laughs> yeah. But the mother has this special, unique bond with the child. And so yeah. you were basically coming home. Absolutely. There was that bond that uh, that I uh, maybe, as you say, I instinctively knew as a child that I was mm-hmm. destined to come to America. And as it turned out, I I mean, she was an American citizen, so I could never, have, I couldn't get the Tanzanian citizenship because nobody knew my father, and that's where my mm-hmm. citizenship mm-hmm. come from. So my mother, you know, went to 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 the office, went to the Department of State in Tanzania in Dar es Salaam. Mm-hmm. And, and vouched that she was an American citizen. So I did get my uh, my American passport and American citizenship mm-hmm. from her. So that was mm-hmm. a very big gift, very big thing she did for me. As you read in the mm-hmm. book, we didn't, you know, she was a very difficult woman, and we didn't get mm-hmm. along in many ways. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are so many things, you know, she did for me that I, I am forever grateful that really made a difference in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you find your father? Yes, I ended up finding. I found my father when I was 48 years old. <laughs> my mother introduced me to my half brother. You know, her child mm-hmm. with her husband, mm-hmm. and he his mm-hmm. name was Larry, and uh, he was of course full American, and uh, he was white, and he was brought up in the in Tanzania too. As uh, he went, you know, as a colonial child, meaning he, right. he they lived separate areas and all, and he went to boarding schools and all, and he was just a wonderful, wonderful person, and and we had asked our mother to tell me something about my father, but she completely said nothing. She wouldn't talk about Africa, so when she mm-hmm. passed away, uh, Larry and I went to Tanzania, and I mean, we were really like the blind leading the blind. We had no idea who or where to look for. He had lived there for over 40 years, and I had yeah. no clue, and we didn't know, so we you know, as you remember in the book, we started out, and and I'm telling you, miracles really do happen. We ended up finding it. Right. Yeah. Right. Beautiful story. Beautiful story. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio.
Mixcloud, and Google Play. My guest is Maria Nabu. She is the creator of the popular workout based on African dance, aerobics with soul, and also an award-winning author of the Dancing Soul Trilogy book series, Africa's Child, America's Daughter, and Drum Beat Heartbeats. Maria and I are having a conversation about her inspiring and heartwarming memoir series that chronicle her triumph over adversity as a mixed-race orphan child raised by German missionary nuns in a boarding school in Tanzania, challenges as an immigrant in the United States, her path to success, and timeless life lessons she learned along the way. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Maria, what life's epiphany led you to create aerobics with soul? As as I said, you know, I always loved to dance. I used to sneak out of mm-hmm. the bed in the, you know, dormitory at night and go down and dance with the Africans. I just loved that kind of freedom of dance, and it, it stayed with me all the time. Uh, and when I came to America, I, I kind of put on some music and I continued to dance, you know. So uh, when the fitness craze came, you know, in the 80s or so, and everybody was doing dance aerobics and it was all this, I went to a few classes and I was really, really bored. And I remembered my dances at home. But I, and I, I decided, you know, I did them on my own in my own, in my home. But then there was something within me again. It is that me looking at myself, just saying, and looking at America and looking at what was going on. And, and I saw that there were just so many people in America who had, who had been there for me, who had really mm-hmm. helped me in so many ways become the person that I have become now. And, yeah. and I was always feeling, how do I give back? What do I do? I wanted to give, up, to give back something that was me, that was a part of me, that was authentic, that only I could give. So I, I get so much joy when I dance the African way, you know, and I, I felt that that is the joy, that is what I can maybe share. So I created this fitness program based on African dancing. You know, it is spontaneous, it's magical, it's drumming, it's heartbeats, it's all of this, and, and uh, little by little word got out, and I must say I really feel very fulfilled from my mm-hmm. original uh, ambition or the goal, the objective of giving back and sharing something beautiful about my mm-hmm. culture because what I was hearing for the most part was, was you know, the bad things about Africa, or all the famine, uh, we are poor, we are mm-hmm. uneducated, mm-hmm. so many things. But I also knew there was so much beauty and there was so much that we could share. And to me, that was really helped me feel like I am giving something back because the feedback I got from Americans everywhere when I teach, I can't put a price on it. They, they mm-hmm. get it, and they participate mm-hmm. in it, and it changes them. And, I, and that mm-hmm. is one. It was the main reason I created Aerobics with Soul. Education is extremely emphasized in your writings. Why is that? Well, because I knew if I didn't get an education, I would never, ever leave the orphanage because the orphanage went only up to the third grade. 
I mean, the fourth grade. And I know if I didn't get an education, I would have to go back. And there were, education opened doors for me. I might be able to be, I had to be educated. I had to speak English in order to get a job, even as a caregiver or a, or a maid for a white family. I had to have, mm-hmm. you know, an education. And if I was going to go to America, which I always kind of felt there was a hope I was going to go, there was something that told me I got to go, I knew I had to finish high school. And uh, so I fought as you see in the book, I really, I mean, I earned my education with blood, sweat, and tears. You know, so many people mm-hmm. would have given mm-hmm. up along the way, but I, I felt I had no choice because education was going to be one of the ways I could get myself to the next phase which was to, you know, hopefully go to America or get a better job in Africa or leave the orphanage. It was my way to leave the orphanage. I truly believed it. Are you still in touch with your childhood friends? I'm in touch, yeah, with several. I have, uh, yeah, there's one in Uganda and one in Kenya and and a couple in in Tanzania. I don't know if you remember, you know, in book one, it opens up with uh, my friend Elizabeth in the child, which is my very, very good friend. And uh, we know when I, at 13, when I went away to this boarding school, this African school, 200 miles away, and I came back, to the orphanage, she was no longer there. She had gone. I was told she was she had run away, and I never saw her. And then, in in uh, subsequent trips that I went to Tanzania, I asked for her every time. I asked, they, nobody knew where she was, or she was in Germany. And I was finally told she had passed away. Well, this year, this January, you know, January 2019, mm-hmm. I took Kathy, mm-hmm. my adopted mother, who was turning 30. I took her back to the orphanage. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went, uh, we were over there. And guess what? Somebody in Facebook was reading the free pages in Am- on Amazon <laughs> and recognized uh, Elizabeth and wrote me on Facebook and said, "I think this Elizabeth you are talking about is my mother." And long <laughs> thought it was. So we had a reunion. We reconnected. I looked for her this January, and we reconnected after 63 years. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. picked up where we left off. It was it was one of the most beautiful things. But to me, that was such a highlight. And I have three or more friends who live live around the orphanage. That whenever I go, I visit them. And there are three, two or so who live in the United States. So we try to stay in touch in that way too. So it's uh, but finding Elizabeth to me was truly the icing on the cake. It was a beautiful story. One of the things that I wanted to talk about also is the fact that obviously you grew up being tutored by the Catholic nuns and you were taught Catholicism and so forth. So obviously from the very beginning, you were already exposed to spirituality and so forth. And of course, with Fat Mary, the creation of yourself in connecting with your divine higher self from within. And then as a mother, you experience, I would think like every mother out there, it's like a nightmare when I went through certain things in my life. Your son wanted to be a Buddhist monk. Yes. So, you know, it's it's just crazy, you know. <laughs> but my, the kind of spirituality I had out of Catholicism was not the right. kind of spirituality that maybe it did not register with me. I, For some reason, <laughs> I, as a child, as you know, I was... Always yeah. beaten for trying to skip mass, for for doing everything right. but praying right, and and I, you know, I I I believed in a superior being and all, but all the trappings, all the outward 
expressions of Catholicism, you know, the practice itself. I just kind of went through them. The dead part didn't register, you know, as much with me. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. so, but I was born a Catholic. If I have to consider myself what religion mm-hmm. I am, I would say I'm a Catholic, although I'm not a practicing yeah. Catholic, but do believe sure. in a lot of what they teach, and I, and that is my religion. If I were to say something, but you know, I was right. a Catholic. My ex-husband was an atheist, and here mm-hmm. both of my children are Buddhist. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I don't know where that all came from or how it went <laughs> went around, but my children are, are deeply uh, spiritual mm-hmm. beings, and mm-hmm. uh, as I observe them. Every so, I'm so amazed how much I can connect, I can tap into their spirituality, because it is it is that kind of of belief of spirituality that has sustained me as a child, and it, I'm just so grateful and so beautiful to see that 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 is what my who my children are and who they have become. Very very interesting story. Why do you have a great love for African art? Yeah, I love African art. I don't know, maybe naturally, you know, I'm just kind of a, a creative person and, and, and uh-huh. I like art, I like dance. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in Africa, in, at the orphanage, we never saw African art, never. On the, on the hallways, in the church, in the dormitories, everywhere, there are pictures of Jesus Christ with his heart exposed mm-hmm. and broken and bleeding, or you have the Virgin Mary, or you have the saints. Mm-hmm. We had all of those things. So I never saw African art. I literally saw African for the first time when I came here to America. And I remember the first thing I saw was a mask, and it was pretty badly done. And it, it mm-hmm. was some, it, you know, it was uh, Pier 1 Imports or Target or some mm-hmm. of those places. And, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I stopped and I looked at it. I mean, I remember it spoke to me. There was something about the, the, what the art represented that touched that soul of mine, that connected on that level. I could see the person carving it. I could see the ritual behind it. I could imagine what is this person. I was so drawn to it. And so I kept, every time I would see another piece of art here or there or anywhere, I would go, I decided to go to museums to look at art. And there was something about the art that connected me to who I was, and to my ancestors, which was something mm-hmm. I always had, not in real life, but but in my soul and in my mind, I always felt connected to that world of where I came from. And African art absolutely was a concrete representation of that world that I felt very much a part of. Can you share with us your thoughts about family, divorce, and your bout with cancer? Well, um, of course, family, as you know, my history, I didn't have a family growing up, so I valued my family very much. So I had, a, of course, a husband and two children, and they they really were everything I uh, in, that I had ever wanted for a very long mm-hmm. time. But, you know, things happen. Not, not every family is perfect. We ended up in, uh, in divorce after 35 years of marriage. It was one of the most difficult um, decisions I have ever made, but I'm the one who decided it was that survival instinct mm-hmm. within me and Fat Mary who told me it's time, it's time, mm-hmm. you need to move on. I fought it for a long time, but again, that survival instinct told me get out. If you stay in this marriage, you will commit suicide. If you stay, you know, it was just like uh, 
So I something told me, take care of yourself and move on. So I did. But one thing I noticed about divorce, which I like to share, is I wouldn't have known mm-hmm. unless I divorced myself, was that, um, you know, when you get married, everybody comes to right. church. You know, you get champagne, you get flowers, there's dancing, there's music, there's presents. I mean, people, the whole community comes to witness your vows, and they come to give you this send-off, and they come to welcome you into the community where you could be parents and produce children and help the society. The community is right there for you, and mm-hmm. it is just a wonderful thing. But when you get divorced, you're alone. Right. You, people don't even want you to talk about it, you know, in a way. You you just mm-hmm. feel like you can't ex- – even if when you talk about it, people will come up with answers like, oh, you're better off. They dismiss it. They just don't know how how to relate. And that really surprised me. I thought I would have mm-hmm. the same – not that you should have a divorce party per se, but I think that would be a very <laughs> good idea also. But, uh, <laughs> you know, because because – when you get married, you're entering the community, everybody's welcoming you. And then when you right, divorce, right. still in the community, but somehow they don't recognize you anymore. And right, and right, that, right. I had to think about that. And I had to mm-hmm. think I found different ways of, of how, you know, to, to handle it and what has helped mm-hmm. me the most. What has helped me the most during my divorce was to have friends who were there just to listen and let me talk and repeat myself till the cows come home. They just were present <laughs> where I was. They didn't try to give mm-hmm. me solutions. There was no judgment. It was, this is where you are. This is how you feel. I hear you. That was the most helpful for me. And there are many stories I tell about how that happened, but we might take another hour. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Oh, and then totally the cancer, part, you know, getting yeah. cancer, mm-hmm. that, that was, uh, it, at first, I was really, I was really scared. I was really scared mm-hmm. because I was alone. It happened at the same time, right. you know, within the year, I got divorced after 35 years. I was going through it, and during the divorce, I was diagnosed with cancer, and at this time, I was already alone. And then mm-hmm. a few months later, a big hurricane, I live in Florida, came. And, and here I was looking at these three events in my life, and I'm, I'm kind of all alone. It was really scary. But again, mm-hmm. the survival instinct just, you know, really kind of kicked in. And that survival mm-hmm. instinct told me, without mm-hmm. a doubt, it took me to a place of gratitude. I felt so much gratitude right. that I had to have divorced. I was in America, where the medical, where the treatment, where I would have the best treatment, where I, mm-hmm. I mean, if I were in Africa, I have no idea if I would even survive. I have no idea mm-hmm. what was there. So I was very grateful that if this thing happened to me, I was in a country where I would be taken care of with the best medical care. That really, that sense of gratitude mm-hmm. kept me going, mm-hmm. you know. That's a wonderful story because in a nutshell, in some ways, that's a sort of like a reboot, total cleansing. And you're having, yes. you experiencing with all of that going on about the same time thereabout. It's a sense of reborn, yes. a rebirth that you went through. It absolutely is. And, and it kept me going. And, I, and from then on, I've, I've not only survived, I'm just thriving in a way that mm-hmm. I don't know if it would have been possible if I had not gone through through the divorce, right. you know, if I had not right. gone, right. And, and I'm learning to appreciate life and have so much mm-hmm. gratitude 
for so many things, but mm-hmm. gratitude has always been part of my of my being. I mm-hmm. I never take anything for for granted. I just there's so much to be grateful for, and when you live in gratitude, things really really work out, and 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 life is not so difficult. There's so so much to be grateful from people to nature to to everything. There's much to be grateful for, and every time I'm ill, everything something bad happens. I always go back to say it, I mean at least I'm in a country in a place where this can be fixed or I can get help and I won't have to die without the mm-hmm. benefit of medicine or science or anything like that. So true. What would you like for the readers to gain from reading your Dancing Soul trilogy books? Well, I never really wrote the book as a, you know, uh, as an instruction manual of any kind. Writing my story, I really wanted my children to know me because I knew so little about myself. But as I was writing, I just found that it was very necessary for me to tell my story. And uh, following that, I would think I really encourage readers to tell their stories. Everybody has a story. And uh, you might think nobody wants to read it, but people really do uh, get inspired and you you just don't know how many people you will encourage to be themselves and to and to tell their story but i i had no agenda for writing my story i just simply wanted to do that but what i'm really hoping and what i believe will happen is that people who read my story will get from it what they need we all have different backgrounds and different needs different experiences different traumas different wonderful lives we don't know but my story covers all of that and i i really hope people who read my story will get from it what they need to inspire them to become their true authentic selves to respect themselves to love themselves and to share and to feel that almost uh, con- that connection, almost that responsibility uh, for helping out our fellow human beings in no matter what capacity we can, and us as writers, you know, telling our story mm-hmm. might go a long way in helping people. That's true. Very, very true. Where can someone go to get more information about you, buy your books, and keep up with your latest happenings? Uh, I have uh, two very nice websites. Uh, The first one is marianambu.com, and it is very extensive. It tells you a lot about me, my bio, all the different jobs and and organizations and uh, everything that I've been involved in, and there is a lot. So marianambu.com will give you a lot of information, and you will also be able to purchase the books there, but it will take you over to Amazon. Amazon sells my books, and they come out in, uh, of course, hard copy, paperback, um, Kindle version, and, and book one, Africa's Child, is also an audio book, and I'm working on book two to make it an audio book. I also have another mm-hmm. website called aerobicswithsoul.com, and that tells you everything about my dance program, the history, and what's mm-hmm. happening with it. So checking my websites will help you. I also have a blog on, on the marianambu.com website. Fantastic. What is next for you? What is next to me is that I just discovered, you know, writing the book as difficult as it, I thought it was. Uh, it's not uh-huh. the most difficult 
about telling your story. I am right now trying to get the story out there. You know, I could write my story and uh-huh. it could just be under the desk or someplace. Nobody would know about it. So marketing, trying to, to go out there. I actually have become a speaker. I go and speak to organizations and schools and book clubs. I need to get the story out. I need to have people know about my work. So that is what I'm doing, is trying to spread the word, to do PR, to be physically present in as many places as possible and share my story one-on-one or Mm -hmm. with a group uh, so that I can also see how they feel and, and if they have questions, they can ask me directly. So doing PR and marketing looks like it's going to be my full-time job from now on. That's truly wonderful. By the way, we're closing in to the end of the hour since our show is about people, family, and living life. What would you like to share as a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? You know, every, whenever I hear the word recipe, you know, I, I smile because I'm a miserable <laughs> I never look at recipes, so <laughs> I, I figure people should wing it. But in the uh, as far as my life is concerned, mm-hmm. I think what helped me, what what became the recipe for how to live my life, was me learning very early that I was responsible for my own happiness. And in order to do mm-hmm. that, I had to begin by really loving myself unconditionally, by respecting myself, by, by uh, just being very aware of, of, of who I am, uh, how, how important I was in this world, and, and how uh, I had some, I, 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 it was my existence. My existence mm-hmm. was important. My existence needed to, to I, I needed to let people know that I was here. But the first thing I needed to do was to let myself know that I was very, very valuable. And I learned to love myself. So that really has helped me my entire life. No matter what happens, I go back to knowing who I am and loving myself and respecting myself and knowing that I am valuable, and from there on, I could I could go and spread that word to other people because very often I see people do not either they think very poorly of themselves or they don't love themselves or they don't they don't realize how how special and precious they are and how how they are needed in this life. So true, very very true. And what you're telling us is that. We often look at people through the lens of love, but we don't see ourselves through the lens of love, and we need to do that. That's very, very true, you know, because you cannot really give what you do not have. You have to have experienced mm-hmm. love and to know it. And if you have no parents or anyone who gives it to you, like in my case, you have to have it from somewhere. So, and you can get it for yourself, from yourself. We have a great capacity to love ourselves. We just have to go there and be there and look at it and let it happen. And, and we, we just often think love is for you love other people. You know, if people think self, you know, when you love yourself in that way, it's selfish. It is not selfish at all. It's being very, very mm-hmm. real. That's so true. So true. Maria, thank you for the great recipe, for living, and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me in three weeks, Tuesday morning, November the 5th. My guest will be Amy Newmark, the publisher and editor-in-chief for Chicken Soup for the Soul. Amy and I will be 
having a conversation about their latest release, Chicken Soup for the Soul, The Forgiveness Fix. 101 stories about putting the past in the past and moving forward. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fnnktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Maria, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed day. And you too. Thank you so much. <laughs>